Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. If you run a team, are in the workplace mental health sector, or generally want to know how to best support your employees, then tune in and listen up to today's episode. We chat with Dr. Joel Davies, psychologist and senior people scientist at Culture Amp. Today, we discuss the role that both organizations and employees play in supporting well-being, global well-being trends, the impacts of well-being on organizational success, and the most common psychological hazards in the workplace. Joel Davies, thanks so much for taking some time to have a chat with me and share your story and your journey with our listeners. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure to be here. So Joel, if you want to tell us, before we get into Culture Amp and everything, all the amazing Mm -hmm. stuff that you guys do and what you're up to and where things are headed, it'd be great to get a bit of background story so we can put a bit of perspective into the listeners about how you got to where you are today. Sure. I'm not sure how far back you want me to go. But yeah, uni years or? Yeah. So I was prior to going to uni, I was a musician and I was pretty determined I was going to be a huge rock star. But I thought I'll go to uni as a backup. And which which town or city are you living in? Sydney. Sydney. Okay, yeah, cool. Sydney. And I'll go to uni as a backup. And so I went and studied psychology. My granddad was a neuropsychologist, worked with kids with learning disabilities. And I thought that sounded really interesting. I was very interested in people understanding what we can do to help them. Mm -hmm. So I thought, yep, that sounds really interesting. And I was really interested in neuroscience. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll live and work with people with with brain damage Mm -hmm. and work in rehabilitation. Over time, the the music thing started to wind up. I was doing it in the background, but realized it probably wasn't for me. I was writing with all these quite successful people and realizing they weren't actually that passionate about what they did anymore. But psychology became more and more this thing that I was fascinated by. I realized that probably being a neuropsych wasn't cut out for me because I didn't want to write reports all day, but I could see how much of an impact work life had on so many of the people around me and how much of what happens at work bleeds in life. So org psych, organizational psychology sort of drew me in and I ended up doing my master's and PhD just because I never wanted to leave uni. 
Stayed there for a long time. In the background, worked in consulting, did my own tech startup, came out and did some work in academia and more consulting work, and then eventually ended up at CultureAmp, which was a, a fit of all the things that I really was interested in. It was in tech. It was in an industry that had a lot of impact. It was very data-focused, but also was very much about the human side of things and making organizations fantastic places to work in. So, well, that sounds incredible. So you just had a bit of a passion for psychology and yeah. then you pursued that and then mixed that with tech. You, you finally got to where you are now. How long have you been with Culture Amp for? Just over a year and a half now. Okay. And I mean, for those who don't know, do you just want to tell everybody what, that, what, the, what the company does? And- yeah, sure. I'll give you a little spiel. So we are the market-leading employee experience platform. About 6,000 organizations use us worldwide to collect feedback from their people, do everything from run engagement, well-being surveys, performance management, development, and a lot more. So, Training. Yep. Yeah, wow. Yep. Okay, cool. And is it for mainly large corporations or is it for… No, twenty from 25 employees up is the organizations that we work with, very diverse industries, very diverse sizes of organizations too. So you joined during COVID? Correct, I did, yes. And so was that company going through a growth phase due to the remote workforce that had to happen and that work at home sort of a notion? Is that how it's I think so. Up? Yeah. I mean, the company is growing very fast and has been growing very fast for a number of years. I think that employee culture and employee experience is, is having its moment now and it probably has been for a few years. But the, I think the pandemic accelerated the emphasis and increased the emphasis that people have on culture because people have also woken up and said, I need to rethink what's important to me when it comes to work. We're having this idea of the great resignation start to kick in now, whether or not it turns out to be the great resignation or the greatest resignation. But a lot more businesses are seeing that it's really, really critical if they want to hang on to their people, especially their best people, they need to invest in in their culture and in their employee experience so people want to stay. And I mean, that was always, that's always been an issue, but what it's done is taken it from a face-to-face ability to control and, and monitor and, and really drive that to remote working, which is quite tough. It can be, certainly. And certain organizations have done it a lot better than others. And to your point, I feel like because there has been a lot of people, there's not this level of face time that you would have had before. You do have to collect more feedback from people to see how they're going. And from a well-being perspective, for example, in many of the cues and things you would have picked up from just having a conversation or observing somebody in the office, you now no longer have. So you need to be more explicit and ask people how they're going on a more regular basis. But yes, it's been a really interesting time on the remote work front. It's been fascinating to watch CultureAmp from the inside and see what good can look like. And then obviously I work with customers that are maybe not doing it so well. If we look at the the pandemic, COVID, roughly two years or so, year and a half or so that it really, and it's still playing, uh, impacting upon life and work today, no doubt, post-pandemic. But I mean, if you if you look back at the last 18 months or so, what are we seeing as it relates to from the employee perspective? Are we seeing faster rates of burnout? And, and if so, is that due to the anxiety around the pandemic and trying to work from home with kids? Or, I mean, tell us a little bit about the employee's point of view during the pandemic and how that's impacted upon their well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So we've noticed a few things. 
So we, we have, for example, a question in our wellbeing template, which is, I rarely feel overstressed by my work. What we saw is that prior to the pandemic, about 50% of people agreed with that. That then dropped pretty significantly throughout the pandemic. There was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of change that had to come with managing that transition. And we've started to see that pick up a little bit now, but it's got a long way to go to get back to where it was pre-pandemic. And ideally, we'd like it a lot higher than it was pre-pandemic as well. We've noticed a few groups that have been significantly impacted. So unfortunately, women seem to have been slightly more impacted especially in their ability to manage work and home demands and to juggle those responsibilities. So women have actually gone about four or five points backwards on questions relating to managing work and home demands, whereas men have stayed static. So there is a big opportunity. And, and part of this is societal expectations around who does the lion's share of stuff at home. So child rearing, cleaning the house, all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, yeah. still women take a, a bigger share of that, that burden and that is going to impact them at work. So there's a lot that needs to be done there. When I, when I saw that data, I did go home and immediately wash the dishes uh, before my girlfriend got home, just so I could <laughs> see the change I wanted to see in the world. But it does turn out you need to do it more than once. So um, <laughs> I'm working on that. Uh, and then managers was one of the other groups that was being significantly impacted as well. So questions around workload being reasonable for their role, questions around being able to take time off have gone backwards for managers. And finally, HR as well, often feeling the, the brunt. So a lot of people have had to carry a lot over the last couple of years and it's definitely coming out in our data. Because there is a bit of a lag between when we get the data based on the last couple of years yeah. to, to see that and yep. see that impact and no doubt that it will continue to get mm. that data over the next couple of years to see how that's going. But mm. I mean, we, we've seen and the word pivot was used so many times during <laughs> COVID. It's like we're business models and the way of working had to pivot to remote working and set things up remotely in some ways people some people felt there was more that more flexibility be able to work from home was was really good for a certain period but then we also started to see that that distinction between where work stopped and you know their day-to-day -day life it sort of was really blurred mm. and is that where we see that burnout during COVID was that because they didn't know where to turn off or because of the external pressures that were coming, the uncertainty around COVID and, and the limitations upon where they could move throughout the day? Was it a combination of all these factors that were really driving this burnout for the employees? Yep, I think you nailed it on the last one. It's definitely a combination of all these things. And you think about stress, you just keep adding little, little bits of stress one on top of the other from multiple sources. Eventually, that's going to become a, a pretty big load that people need to carry. So I think it's a, it's a confluence of all of those things and many more. Tell me about the, I mean, well-being as it relates to organizations. Are we seeing now, do, do you think as a result of the great resignation that's, that maybe we're in at the moment where people are changing what they do, do you think that that came about from them having all this time to think and reflect and see what was important in life? Or do you feel like it was a result of organizations now saying oh everyone get back to work let's get back to the way it was and then saying well hang on no now we want this and so now all of a sudden there seems to be a bit, bit of a tussle where the employees now seem to be wrestling and probably getting a little bit more of that of that say now that we're sort of coming out of it now it feels like that they're in a bit of a the box seat i guess so to say yeah, so I think it's a few things. I think the great resignation, and it, it's still early, too early to know exactly how it's going to play out. 
I think part of it is that there is a, just a backlog of turnover. There were people that would have left in 2020 and didn't because okay. so much uncertainty. Again, in 2021, they would have left but didn't. And so now they're finally, things are the ground underneath people's feet is a bit more stable. And so they're saying, okay, time to go. Now, what I've seen, at least in American data, is that turnover has been ticking up for a while. I think that there has been this movement. People are expecting more and more from their organizations, and they are willing to go and find other options if they feel like the work that they're doing is not good for them or is ultimately fulfilling. So that's definitely been a trend, and perhaps the pandemic has given everybody time to reflect for sure. I think that's probably playing into it. But also, it's just a lot of opportunities out there. There are a lot of organizations that are offering employees a lot more. And so they're providing a fantastic experience. They are saying, you know, you're struggling with with excessive burdens. We'll, re- we'll, release, we'll reduce the amount of work and we'll hire enough people to make it possible to do your best work. And we'll give you development opportunities and we'll do all these other things that can make things work great. And then there are a lot of organizations that are not doing that. And it's, it's a free market. And so people move things are better do you have any thoughts about why there is a shortage of staff at the moment i mean is it purely because the international visitors aren't coming or because companies are growing and now you know there's just a limited amount of pool of people that's available like why do you think there's such a shortage at the moment in many industries yeah i think both i mean certainly in in tech where culture amp sits there is just a lot of growth in tech companies and there's just a, a limited supply of say great developers and great salespeople and that sort of stuff. And obviously the the influx of immigrants has has lessened pretty dramatically. Although more and more organizations now are realizing they can hire people all, all, all over the place. So yeah, I think it's a combination of those two things. And we'll see what happens. If we do go into a recession, it might change things slightly, but it's TBC. And do you think do you think now organizations are now we're seeing them more than ever prioritize well-being for their employees and do you think it's a result of they need to be competitive or do you think it's a result that now all of a sudden they're taking it serious and and actually believe in it what do you think that is look i think i'm probably slightly more on the cynical side i would say that people are taking it more seriously in terms of lip service certainly in some in some cases there's definitely a desire to be seen to be caring about it and doing things that might be seen to be valuable, like box tinking things, like giving people spa vouchers and resilience training and that sort of stuff, which has its place, absolutely. But think that there's still a way to go for executives and people that have the power to really make change, to really see, to really invest in doing the things that are going to have the biggest impact, like reducing the total demands that are put on people like hiring more resources, like removing toxic leaders that are bullying people and harassing them, even though that they are those that bring in a lot of money. So I think we have a way to go in terms of caring about this really more than just being seen to care about it. But there are certainly leaders that are caring about it for business reasons. And I mentioned, I'm not sure when this comes out, but I did a talk this morning and I was talking about how we we need to get better at convincing those senior leaders of the business case for investing in well-being, not just the humanitarian reasons, which are, of course are important, but we need to be able to demonstrate ROI on investing in people and data becomes really, really important there. Linking data from the, the feedback you get from your people 
with business outcome data like turnover, like revenue, like customer satisfaction, that kind of stuff to really tell the business case and then having really good stories that you collect in the business to help illustrate the causal link between well-being and business outcomes. So for the ones that aren't taking it seriously, really unfortunately, but we need the people to be driving it from the bottom up and to show that business case in order to get the buy-in from the top level. Is that correct? Correct. I think that's the biggest the biggest issue that I see in so many organizations is that you've got passionate people, especially HR and people that are responsible for helping protect the well-being of people that really want to make a change and they feel like all of their efforts are hamstrung by a lack of buy-in, buy-in from leaders who are saying all the right things but not actually putting the level of investment that's required to make a change. And unless you can convince them, speaking their language, unless you can show really good reasons for them to invest in this beyond just caring about people, which obviously is part of it, you're probably not going to get the level of buy-in that's required to really shift the dial. And you need to, you also mentioned in your presentation about not enabling your leaders. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I do feel like that part of the problem is that you can absolutely do analyses in organizations to show that investing in well-being will lead to better outcomes. And in most organizations, you'll find something there. But there are many organizations where the link between well-being and business outcomes is not as strong as it should be. And the reason for that is that there are people in those businesses who are willing to sacrifice their well-being, to work extremely long hours, to, to tolerate very unhealthy behaviors, because that's what they think they need to do. And we know people don't change unless they have to, and leaders are the same. Most leaders are not going to really invest enough to fix things if they don't feel like they have to. So the point I was trying to make this morning was that if you are one of those people that is tolerating very unhealthy behavior, you are ultimately enabling leaders and you're preventing them from hitting rock bottom to to continue the analogy. So being really, really good at your job and then using that as leverage to make change becomes really important. Negotiating for change and then being willing to walk away and leave your organization is one of the most important things if you really want to create long-term change in that organization. Mm. And you stress the importance of being great at your job and then going to you know seek demand you said you said mm. demand but kindly you know in a way that gets some you know communicates it in a yeah. nice way but trying to get them on board 100 percent. and i've been hearing a number of these examples recently of people who are great at their job they're a safe pair of hands they are really productive they are a pleasure to work with they're innovative critical thinkers very disciplined and then they say look this is what i need i need more resources I need better work conditions, I need more work-life balance, I need longer holidays, whatever else it is that they need to look after their own well-being, and they get it if they're willing not to back down. So we all know the same thing, works and salary. If you are great at your job and you are very adamant that you need to be paid more and you're willing to walk away, you'll usually, there'll be money there to pay you what you're worth. Mm. Same thing when it comes to well-being, but it's a little bit on us as individuals to make the case that it's what we or insist that that's what we need in a in a nice way joe how do we know like if companies are going to move towards you know trying to be a front runner in the in the in the in the game of well-being and trying to really show they care is there a point at which you think some of them look at it and go is there a line where we can get away with the minimum Mm -hmm. versus going 
all out and trying to go too far the other way. And at what point, how do you, how do they know at what point that they feel like they've hit the criteria of where they feel like they're doing a, a good job? I think that's very challenging to do. It's a little bit of trial and error and, yep. and then collecting feedback from your people. Is this working? We're going to try this. We're going to implement this new thing. Tell us, do you think it's working? Or at least measure pre and post and see that there has been a bit of a change. So I think it's just a matter of giving things a go and then checking in on whether or not it's working, iterating over time. And mate, tell me around, I mean, of the companies that are actually doing this and driving it now, do you think that now they're using this as a tool to attract the best talent? So so to stand out from the crowd in a competitive way, in a competitive environment? 100%. 100%. There is, now there are certain industries that are doing this better because the war for talent is is harder. And so they have that incentive as we're, as we're talking about. And there is a shortage of talent. And so your EVP, your employee value proposition is more important than it's ever been. And also more people now, word gets out when an organization is a great place to work at. Platforms like Glassdoor are becoming more important than ever. People want to know what it's like to work at an organization before they actually get in there. In fact, it's one of the reasons I chose to work at CultureAmp over taking another job offer. Mm -hmm. And if you are the kind of organization that is looking after people's well-being and really investing in having a great employee experience, word gets out and people want to work for you. And we're seeing a number of the organizations we work with that really invest in this. The number of applications they're having from really great people for open roles, far greater than those that aren't making this a priority. Right. So so there's actually applications, uh, applicants out there that are wanting to work for the right company. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I think people are now realizing that Especially if, you, if you're good at your job and you're in an industry and you, you have a, s- a set of skills that's in high demand, you have the ability to choose to work somewhere that is going to be far more aligned with your values and so people are choosing to work with there. And hopefully that means that we'll get those free market changes where more organizations realize now they have to step up the plate. They have to be able to compete with those organizations if they want to be able to continue to get great people. As we look at it, I mean, when we're talking about well-being for people, we're, we're moving from the typical only care about them while they're at work, bring your best self to work. We're now moving towards the holistic approach, caring about them not just while they're at work but beyond that. Is that some of the distinctions that we're now seeing in the well-being space where they're you know, looking for gym memberships or looking for, to give them extra holidays, looking to is, – is are they the sort of things we're now seeing in the well-being space? Yeah. Certainly a lot of yep, people yep. giving people a lot more options, things that are going to impact their home life for sure. And giving people autonomy and, and asking them what they'd like, I think is important to hear. You know, I've heard examples of this going well, where you, you give people gym memberships and you get a lot of uptake. And then I've heard people, there'd be very little uptake. So it depends on a lot of factors. I think you need to trial these things out and get feedback from your people on whether or not they're really hitting the mark and it's what's what they want. But I think that they are a great addition to a well-being program. And how individualized does it need to be? Is it like a company-wide policy? Is it more individuals based on specifically what Joel really likes and really wants? We then bend over backwards to try and create a unique setup for Joel and then someone else. And then I imagine if you've got a fair few employees... It could be overwhelming trying to track who's, what are we doing for who and when they're working and when they're not for meetings. I mean, is it, how far do you reckon we're going to go with this? 
It's yet to be determined. I think that there's going to be a lot of experimentation in this space and we'll see that some things that we try work and some things don't. I think that personalization is always good though because we need to remember that people are different and as much autonomy as flexibility as flexibility that we can give people, the better because that's ultimately going to be what they need. Now it has to be practical, but there are ways you can do that when it comes to the benefits we're talking about mm-hmm. on culture ramp. We just have a, a stipend to spend on all things relating to well-being and there's a huge list of things you can spend it on from massages to getting someone to come and clean your house to going on a holiday. There's a whole host of things and it's left up to the individual to decide what makes sense for them. Oh, so there's a budget per person? There is, yep. And then yep. there's additional budgets for other things that would be adjacent to well-being. And, yep. Wow. Well, that's incredible. And, and does it go beyond just you but to you, your partner or your family or is that, is that included now as sure. well? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Wow, that's incredible. Mate, let's talk about some of the common psychological hazards at the workplace. What are they and what should people be looking out for? Yeah, so there's quite a few. So in the workplace, number one would be job demands. Mm-hmm. So whenever the, the demands of your job exceed your capacity to deliver, you're going to be at risk of burnout and a risk of having a mental health issue. Then you have things like poor change management practices, you have a lack of fairness, you have low psychological safety where people don't feel comfortable speaking up and sharing how they're going or the risks they're observing in the workplace. You have things like low control and low autonomy, bullying and harassment obviously is a big one and a whole host of of other things. So all those things that can add stress to our lives outside of work also become risks inside of work. And are you seeing... Is it, is it measurable? Like are these things that workplaces can actually measure? I absolutely think that they can. I mean, wellbeing surveys are really, really important. And if they're well designed and they're rolled out in a way where people feel comfortable providing feedback and can be honest, then I think they can be a really powerful tool to understand what the risk factors are and help understand ultimately where you need to be intervening to create change. And to... The, the point that we talked about previously, they're indispensable when it comes to getting exec buy-in because you can start linking some of those measurements to business outcomes like turnover, customer satisfaction, revenue growth, all of those sorts of things. So yes, I think you can ma- ma- measure them. You will only be able to see the tip of the iceberg in many cases and any kind of survey should be the first step in getting an, an overall snapshot of how people are feeling, but then you need to do the follow-up and, and get more granular, but I do believe that they are pretty indispensable. Joel, in your opinion, if you look at the most psychological safe or healthiest organizations, what they're doing really meaningfully in the place of well-being and workplace mental health, what's some of the things that they're doing and how are they doing it? Yeah, look, it's not, I wouldn't say it's one thing. It's probably many things. Okay. Firstly, I would say that anecdotally, it seems like the senior execs and often the CEO really gets it. Like this is not a box ticking thing for them. They, they genuinely care about well-being in the workplace. And so everything flows down from that. So that means like hiring enough people to be able to do the work that's there. It means psychological safety. So providing a lot of forums and opportunities for people to tell leadership what's important to them and what's working well. It looks like having fair and equitable processes from everything to do with performance management to reward. It looks like giving enough enough people 
flexibility to work when and, and how they want, it giving people autonomy to trust and trust that they will own decisions and run with things the way that they will see fit. It looks like providing growth opportunities and a sense of progress, which can we know can be a protective factor if people feel like they're growing. It looks like even making people feel like they've got a lot of meaning in work. So job crafting and making feel like what they're doing is really valuable. Again, another protective factor. So it's very multifaceted, but the, the general approach is making sure that people are priority. They are not a resource to be expended in the search for or the desire to make more money. They are your most valuable resource and they are the thing that is going to be the determinant of the long-term success of your business. That's really interesting. There's some really good points. There's a lot to it, isn't there? A lot to it, yeah. Un- unfortunately, and that's why, I mean, everybody wants the silver bullet. Yeah. And like, what's the one thing that's going to yeah. make all the change? And unfortunately, there isn't one. And it's not about putting a ping pong table in the staff room or, you know, having a nap room or something like that. You know, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? 100%. And those things can actually backfire if you're not careful because for example if you've got a, an organization where people are hugely overworked and you have hugely unrealistic deadlines and people are just pushing towards deadlines that are just unachievable and then you say all right well we're going to bring bean bags into the office and we're going to give you some massage vouchers you're going to have a whole lot of very resentful employees because what you're saying is we don't really understand the extent of this problem. We don't really appreciate how much suffering you're going through. We think it's the kind of thing that can be fixed with beanbag chairs and a massage. So I think organizations need to be careful doing any of those things because it can backfire and show people that you don't really understand the the problem. You're not addressing the underlying cause. It'd be better not to do it at all, Yeah, to do those things at all. And the best way to do that is to get some sort of feedback loop, right? To, To understand truly what they want. Yep. To feel supported and help. Yeah, 100%. Having that yep. feedback loop is really critical. And then making sure that you're focusing on the highest leverage activities you can. It's a bit technical, but driver analysis that shows what things in the workplace are predicting overall well-being the most. That's going to help you understand where you should apply your efforts because you probably aren't going to do 12 things well. But you do want to focus on those things that matter the most. And CultureAmp have over 6,000 customers globally or thereabouts you, you guys obviously are collecting a lot of data mm-hmm. for people are there any other trends that you're seeing that we haven't spoken about as we look at this internationally look i've spoken about a few of them i th- there's a lot and there's definitely a lot that sits outside of the well-being space but no i think that one thing that i haven't mentioned which i do think is important is that just because the pandemic hasn't is starting to wind up fingers crossed let's see and this actually comes out if we're still on, yes. still where we are now, but that just because maybe a little less uncertainty and a little less social isolation, that it doesn't mean that we need to take our foot off the accelerator and this is going to become a less of an issue. But certainly with the organizations I work with, and I work with quite a number now, they are starting to actually see that this could become more of a problem rather than less of a problem because we're starting to see turnover increase pretty significantly. And what you're having in a lot of organizations with high demand roles where people are leaving is a situation where you're having turnover contagion where people are leaving and now the people that are left in that team have to carry the load of those that left. And 
It takes a long time to hire new people, to train new people. And as a result, you you can start to get those people that burning out and leaving. And certainly something I'm noticing in a, in a few organizations I work with. And so we need to be careful that we look after the people that are still in the organization. As people start to leave, we need to be willing to push out project deadlines and reduce the total burden on people if we want to keep them longer. You're right. It's a good point, isn't it? Because when one, it's sort of like a snowball effect, like you mentioned. Can be. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that only increases the stress levels and the pressure on everybody else in the team. Yep. And it's okay when turnover's low, but if it starts increasing, you can have a real knock-on effect. So we need to be mindful of that and make sure we're accommodating that turnover is increasing. Joel, it's been really insightful. One of my last question, I guess, for you is into the future, what excites you most about workplace well-being and where things are headed or what do you think is the biggest challenges that we'll face? What excites me is I really do think that there are changes coming. There is a, a ground swell and as we've already alluded to, change really only happens when, especially change at the top, only really happens when it's necessary. And employees really drive change. When they expect more, that's when change happens. And there does seem to be a real shift where more and more employees are expecting more from their employer. And my hope is that that's something that continues and that organizations are forced to take this really seriously and can move beyond the box ticking things and start to really create workplaces that enable people to flourish and be their best versions of themselves. I do believe that's going to be best for business as well in the long run. But I do think that this is that we are at the beginning of real change in the way that we work. And I'm looking forward to see how it plays out. And thanks so much, Joel. It's been really interesting talking to you. If people want to get hold of you and have a chat or connect, how would they best do that? Probably LinkedIn is LinkedIn. the best place to go. Yeah, if you just put Dr. Joel Davies into LinkedIn, you'll find me, send me a message. I'd love to have a chat. And if you'd like to hear more about CultureAmp, you can just check out cultureamp.com. And we have lots of very cool resources on there. And some of the research I mentioned today will be on there too. It's been amazing. I appreciate you know you taking the time coming to chat to us and, and sharing your story and your insights. It's been really interesting where things are at the moment, but also where things are heading and keen to see yeah, where this continues. My pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.